The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Please turn to Exodus chapter 40. Verses 34 through 38. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. This probably should come at the end of our semester when our series on Exodus comes to an end, but here we are in the middle of the semester going through the end parts of Exodus. Hear now the word of the Lord this morning. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, open our eyes this morning so that we may see and behold your glory. Open our ears so that we may hear your voice directly. Open our hearts, O Lord, so that we may receive and apply these things to our lives. We thank and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to be an appropriate ending, for there is an incredible tension involved here. Israelites kept asking themselves, will God be with us? Will God be with us? The incident of the golden calf is something you and the Israelites remember well, which angered God against the Israelites when they said, come, make us gods who will go before us in Exodus chapter 32. God's anger was swift. He destroyed the golden calf. 3,000 men were killed by the Levites and the plague came upon them. So the question remained for them, will God be with us? If not, what will happen to us? These were not idle questions that they were asking, as Exodus 33 reminds us of the state in which they were. Leave this place, but I will not go with you, God says, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Tell the Israelites, God told Moses, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Those words cannot be erased from their minds. Even as they built the tabernacle, they could not ask, help but to ask the question, will God be with us? Therefore, the descent of the glory cloud was hoped for by the Israelites, but definitely not necessitated or expected. What's the story of the glory cloud this morning? What lessons should the Israelites and us, as a result, gain from the dramatic, dramatic descent of the cloud? This morning, we want to summarize it into three reflective parts. People of God, people without a home, and people of complete dependence. You may not like exactly how I'm dealing with the text, but hear me out as we reflect upon the lessons perhaps we can draw a history lesson perhaps for the Israelites and for many of us here this morning as well. The descent of the cloud confirmed for the Israelites 
the relationship that they had between God and themselves. Indeed, that they are the people of God. They were people redeemed by God. As you recall, Israelites were under the bondage of slavery. And the unlikely hero, Moses, came as champion for God. The Pharaoh, as the champion that stood against God, was destroyed. And here the Israelites were able to gain their liberty and freedom. And by his might, he destroyed his enemies and freed his people from the bondage of slavery. Israelites remembered that indeed there were people created by God. God created the nation of Israel as we see in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You shall be my treasure possession, he said, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not only were they people redeemed by God, created by God, they were also people led and protected by God the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And you may recall the time when they were stuck between the Egyptians and the Red Sea as they were being pursued. Here we're told in chapter 14, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. The net result was fairly simple, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night, protecting his own people. In short, Israelites are nothing apart from God. God defined them. He was indeed their identity. At the same time, there is an incompleteness to this relationship. As a people of God, full access to God was not allowed. No one doubts God's care and love for his people. However, a verse in our text reminds us that the relationship is not as ideal as one would hope. As we see in verse 35, the Mo- and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This despite the affection God had for Moses, as we're told, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, he said, and I know you by name. The cloud that descended upon the tabernacle, the glory cloud of God, functioned to protect, not only to indicate the presence of God among his people, but to protect and to hide God. Even Moses, who pleased the Lord, could not see the fullness of God. This is why for us, while the Israelites rejoiced imperfectly at the presence of God as the one who leads them, covenanted with them, and dwelled among them, we come to recognize that indeed their relationship was incomplete. Thus in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. As as John wrote this verse, he was doubtlessly referring to the great days of Israel's desert wanderings, and he was making sure that we understand the point that all those, those days were great days for Israel. In our day, something much better had happened. Thus the word here used unusually to dwell in a tent. Here, 
This translation is particularly significant because the word refers beyond any question to the portable wilderness tabernacle or temple for the Israelites in which God dwelled. The tabernacle was the center of their worship and the most important single object in their camp, indicating the presence of God amongst them. And now he is amidst us in his son, Christ Jesus. Thus, indeed, all of us in Christ have become the people of God. As Colossians 1.13 reminds, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Christ has redeemed us, Christ has placed us in his kingdom, and Christ has himself led us to our Lord. Even more so than the Israelites of old, we are defined and identified with God in Christ. As Paul states, Christ is indeed our life. But not only are we his people as the Israelites were, here the Israelites were people without a home. One thing that you and I remember well is that the tabernacle was temporary. There are much that we can understand about the tabernacle. Indeed, it was quite big. The tabernacle was about 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide. It was divided into two distinct parts, the inner section being in the form of a square 15 feet by 15 feet, and the outer section being twice as long as it was wide. It was made of boards covered with curtains, and the entire structure stood in a courtyard surrounded by curtains of pure linen rising to the height of over eight feet tall. The numbers details how they should be surrounding the tabernacle, each of the tribes surrounding in such a way that the tabernacle stands at the center of the people of Israelites. The inner chamber contained the Ark of the Covenant, the outer chamber contained the golden altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the golden candlestick. All these things are quite interesting. All these things are quite informative for us, and I would imagine many of us can trace the individual elements here to a greater understanding of what the tabernacle was. Despite all the intriguing details, at the end of the day, there is one unnerving fact about the tabernacle. That is, it's temporary. It's its temporary natures that sticks to us. The tabernacle where God dwelled indicated the humility and condescension of God that he chose to live among his people the way his people lived as mere nomads. It was never meant to be permanent. Rather, it was to point to something more permanent. It was meant to be portable. It was moved constantly, as you can see in our text. The portable nature of the tabernacle did not seem to bother the Israelites not because there were people without higher aspirations in life, but because they knew that the wilderness was not their permanent home. Throughout all their journeys, our text tells us, they were on a journey, a constant journey that promised to take them to a place far different than what they had previously experienced. As Exodus 33:17 promises, as God speaks to Moses, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to, as he said, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's for this reason and their trust that they're, they're on a journey home and that their home is not necessarily the tabernacle in which the Lord now dwelt. They were commended in the New Testament according to Hebrews 11. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There are exiles. There are people who are on a sojourn. They were indeed homesick. The portability of the tabernacle did not bother because they came to recognize that the wilderness journey they are on was mere temporary journey, and their home was far greater than anything that their hands can create. One of your peers many years ago, David Alenskis, actually wrote a little blog about his travels down south in Latin America. And I remember one particular post that explained this mentality of a sojourner or exile quite well when he said, there is almost nothing that reminds me more of the fact that I am a stranger and exile upon this earth, awaiting a homecoming still to come in the city, whose designer and maker is God, than traveling to other countries, not just as a tourist, but as a sojourner. A sojourner is neither passerby nor native. Rather, the sojourner comes to live, but not to belong. The sojourner can adopt the language, clothing, customs, food, friends, property, and a family of the country into which he has entered. Yet at the end of the day, the sojourner owns a passport which states that he is a citizen of another realm with the rights and responsibilities of that citizenship and that he remains in a foreign land for but a while longer, no matter how much he may love and cherish it. I love that expression. Because that should be us. To be honest, brothers and sisters, however, that's quite difficult for us. For we tend to think of this place as indeed our home. What does sojourning as a believer look like? I'm not sure. More importantly, this may look quite different from one to another. But perhaps it is a life focused on matters of eternal consequences, which forces us to have a loose grip on the present and the now. It reminds this generation of instant gratification that indeed delayed gratification might be much more satisfying. It is a life that recognizes the difference between a good life and a godly life, and moreover, a life that is convinced that a godly life is the very good life we're seeking no matter what the world might say around us. It's a life that daily experiences homesickness, an alien and a stranger who is seeking a heavenly home, one who sees the fallen world and knows that things are not the way it's supposed to be, and prays daily for the Lord's grace and hopes in his return. I'm not sure exactly what the sojourning may look like, But I do know this, scripture reminds us over and over again, we are people without a home, and that home is not here, that home awaits us. That our hearts and our desires and our aspirations should not be to paint this town red, but to simply long for that day when we will see God without a veil, 
see him face to face. Not only are we God's people in Christ, not only are we people without a country and a home, here we are people of complete dependence. Notice what he tells us about what happens with the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Israelites had no right of self-determination. When God moved, the Israelites moved. When God rested, they rested. It is a life of complete dependence. What can they do? What should they do? Simply watch, trust, and obey. They were watchful. They needed to be vigilant and sensitive to recognize the movement of God. They trusted often. They had no idea where God was leading them. It's not like they had an opportunity to say, is this the quickest way home for us? Simply when he moved, they moved. And we're quite aware of their failures and complaints seen throughout the books of the Pentateuch. But what was required was absolute trust. Trust that God knows what he is doing. Trust that God will provide and protect at all times. Trust that God will do what is good for them. And this leading to their obedience when called upon. The Israelites responded and responded quickly. By trusting, they obeyed and followed. Our responsibility on this side of the cross hasn't changed much. Despite our natural inclination to trust ourselves and ourselves alone, God in Christ calls us to depend on him, to watch him with care and vigilance and heed his call, to trust him knowing that he'll do what is good for those who love him, to obey him without hesitation and complaints. It isn't as easy, is it? And in fact, the words of Moses encouraged me in some way and challenged me at the same time as the Israelites came to him complaining about the fact that the Red Sea is right before them and the Egyptians are chasing them, asking whether there were not enough graves in Egypt to leave them there, now to bring them into the wilderness to die. This is what he said when Moses replied, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Love that. It's not about me. Nor is it about you. Contrary to popular opinion or what your moms might have said. But it's about the Lord. And we can't help but to repeat the song, When we walk with the Lord, trust and obey, for there is no other way. To be happy in Jesus, perhaps this is overly simplistic for us, but oftentimes we're too sophisticated for our own good. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Standing on this side of the cross, brothers and sisters, we have seen the descent of God's glory in Christ Jesus. And because of Christ, we are called his people, even his brothers and sisters, his children. Because of Christ, we are on our way home, Delayed gratification, perhaps, but indeed, gratification awaits us. Because of him, we live dependently. Because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of his coming.
at the day of his Lord. May this encourage you, challenge you, motivate you as you serve him by studying, as you serve him in your ministries and your homes and relationships. May he receive all the glory and honor as we turn to him and trust and obey the Lord who created us, redeems us, and sustains us even now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us your sons and daughters. We thank you for setting us apart for your kingdom's work, despite the fact that we are weak and many of us lack strength and gifts. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study here, to deeply drink in your word and to be able to try to live it out by the guidance of your spirit. We ask that you will strengthen us, O Lord, and remind us by your word that indeed you are a God who's faithful to us, who redeemed us, created us, sustains us even now. I pray that in silence we may turn to you and trust and obey, that each and every single day, Lord, our desire will be to follow you wherever you lead us without hesitation or fear, not because of our trust in ourselves, but because of our trust in you who has been so faithful to us in Christ. We thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.